Hello and welcome to the Game Agenda, the podcast where four gay guys bring board gaming out of the closet and onto the table. We're your hosts, I'm Larry. I'm Nick. I'm Matt. And I'm Kevin. And today we're going to talk about Cool Mini or Not's hottest, biggest, most fantastic new release, Rising Sun. Hot <laughs> like the sun. Slowly no. rising, though. It's slowly so, rising hot. So it's sun. still it's very, very hot. It's warmish. Warmish? No, no, it's definitely hot. It's hot. Uh, afterwards, we're going to reach deep into the closet and way into the back of the closet and bring out of the closet. Uh, Matt, w- wonderful game. <laughs> no, no, now, Matt's oh. been out of the closet Matt's for a happened. long time, <laughs> at least a few years. No, Race for the Galaxy actually is what mm-hmm. we're going to bring out of the closet. Oh, I love Race for the Galaxy. Fantastic. Well, we're going to tell everybody all about it in a little bit. But let's do what we always do and start by talking about what games folks have been playing recently. Uh, let's start with you, Kevin. What have you been playing? Well, this is very recent, as in like right before I got here. I was playing, actually Matt was playing it too, Istanbul. Not Constantinople? No, thank you for saying it because <laughs> I was going to fumble over that word if I had to say it. So yes, we played Istanbul, which is actually kind of a, a little bit of a solid favorite of mine. I would say it's one of those games where I feel like it's a standard and because it's so... So consistent and yeah. strong. This is very much um, kind of a gateway intro game for people, mm-hmm. I feel. Um, yeah. the, the, it's, it's kind of traditional game mechanics that introduce folks into the hobby and has a lot of depth to it, uh, despite its kind of simple nature. And some what, nice replayability because it's one of those maps where it's you know separate locations that can be put mm-hmm. in different orders. And because of the way you move around the board, where some location is is very important. And so you mix it around. It's a whole new way of playing. G- give folks a quick overview of how you play the game who, who might not know or might not be familiar with you're, it. You're gem merchants, and we played with a game of five of us, which, um, mm-hmm. Matt, I think that you said that was the first time you played with five. Yeah, actually, it plays up to five, and what's interesting is the board is the same size, but when there's more people, it gets more crowded because you have to pay to go on somebody else's space. I actually liked it a lot with five. And so, yeah, the idea basically is you're gem traders, you're running around the different markets in Istanbul trying to get different things. The ultimate goal is to have um, five or six gems, depending on how many people are playing in the game. And so you get gems different ways. Sometimes you can go, if you get enough coins, you can go just buy them. Or if you have certain goods, you go trade the goods in for them. Or if you have enough of, you know, the slots in your wheelbarrow full. But it's like this kind of, um, you know, uh, challenge where you have to build up your wheelbarrow first to hold an amount of goods that you need to get the certain things. Mm-hmm. To get the, like, and so it's like going to grandmother's house with all the different things you need to do. And then hopefully you get the gems before somebody else. And it's it's kind of fast-paced in a way and fun mm-hmm. because the choices while while not that difficult there's many and sometimes where somebody is it makes one choice seem more appealing than another so right. there's a lot of back and forth it's an interesting because it's it's not quite a worker placement game no. but it's pseudo it's sort of it sort of is because you have assistance you basically what i like which is a fun little mechanic there's a stack of little like circles and you're the main guy and you have a bunch of assistants that are the stack under you as you move somewhere when you go somewhere you like leave an assistant behind to do the action so then you continue on so you're kind of leaving your people all throughout the market and then when you run out of people you you have to go basically back to home base or find them again because you can go to them again and when you go to them again they do the action again when you pick them up so it's a, just a nice fun little weird way of like worker placement that's a little different it's basically like saying. each action you kind of want to do it twice because once you drop them off and then you come back and pick them up later because it's a little bit less efficient to go to the fountain which let you collect all your guys back so it's sort of 
how do I plan it out where I'm going to go here and then come go around somewhere yeah. else and come back here later? It seems like, I mean, I've never played the game, but it sounds like a lot of the strategy would be like timing it so that you can go back at opportune yeah. times. It's, it's, if you're good at it, yes. <laughs> Me, no, not so much. But that, yeah, the ideal situation is you get that double movement of the thing, or you get the double um, activation mm-hmm. of the spots and you never have to go back to the fountain to gather all your characters together because you're so good at planning your next mm-hmm. move that you just pick everybody. Nope, that didn't happen to me. Oh, fantastic. How about, how about how about you, Matt? Don't be. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice, Kevin. Good for you. So nice. Moving on. I love being patronized. <laughs> uh, well, Larry and I just played uh, Tichu, which is one of my favorite card games. Uh, it's a trick-taking game where you're try your team-based trick-taking game two on two, where you're scoring tricks and earning points. Uh, but it's one of my favorite card games, and I love it. So, what's it called again? Teach you. No, no, you've already taught me. What's the name? What's the game called? Oh Teach my you. god, don't even. No, doesn't work. <laughs> I, I thought of making the exact same no, pun, but I, I figured it would be a bad one. My, my husband made that pun to me the other night, and I, I with teach you. Yeah, Ted, uh, I was telling him about teach you, and he's like, did, "No, no." Did you like, teach him? No, I did not teach him. Um, anyway, but, but so, besides being very punny, it's actually a really. Uh, I, th- I think it's one of the. It's it's the trick taking game that I've played that has the most depth. I think. Uh, there's a lot in the big thing with the game is you're playing a you're playing a bunch of rounds of cards where you're trying to win tricks and get points, sort of like Hearts or other trick taking games like that. But the big thing with Teach You is Teachuing, which is before you play a card in the round, you can call Teach You or which, Grand Teach You or Grand Teach You, but that's even crazier. But if you call Teach You, you're betting a hundred points that you're going to be the first one to go out of cards in the round. Uh, if you win the bet, your team gets 100 points. If you, if anybody else, including your other team member, goes out first, then your team loses 100 points. And all of the cards in the whole round are worth 100 points. So it's really interesting because it's a lot about when knowing when t- that you have the best hand and calling the teach you. And then if you if you're not the person who has the teach you hand, figuring out how to set somebody else, which is canceling their teach you. Yeah, because you you play in pairs too. So like if your partner calls teach you, then you know. I want to make sure that they go out and I'm scoring mm-hmm. points into, you know, my um, my hold. I don't know what you would call it. Yeah. But Your basically, my, I'm taking tricks. Uh, <laughs> We're all about taking tricks yeah. here. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so you're not focused at that point on really going out first. You're letting the other person go out. But then if... Uh, you have, you know, uh, there's a card that allows you to kind of pass play or lead the lead from you to your partner. And so you have to kind of think about, okay, well, I have that card. So even though I might have a good hand, it's actually better for me to pass the lead to my partner. So that way maybe we can go one, two and get out, you know, first and second, which then gets you 200 points. And, you know, or I have a really good hand, but the tricks that I have aren't actually scoring tricks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe is not as good as it appears on first blush. So it's, it's a basic game, but it's got a lot of depth to it. So yeah. I do know that often when, when I've heard that you guys play, you'll play four times, like four little mini games so that everybody has a ch- or chance. Three games. To, three games. So that everybody has a chance to pair up. Well, like, it's funny. All yeah, ways, you right? play, yeah, exactly. You play that way. You play with one with each person. And what's funny is after the three games, there's basically one of two outcomes. Either one person won all three games so you have like an always winner who won every time, or else one person lost all three games and you have an always loser. So we sort of are like, who's going to be the always loser? Who was the always it? winner? So we had an always winner, Ooh. and that was Matt. Yay! Oh. I'm so shocked. Shocking. <laughs> but 
this raises always this interesting philosophical discussion which we had, which is yeah. like, okay, well, let's take this always loser, always winner. You know, wait, was Monica there? Because she loves, she I she love it to bring up that. And so it's like, because it is, it's a great philosophical discussion, right? Would, you, would rather you rather have, have one person who's like the super winner, and then like Everybody three other people okay. who's kind of like mediocre, like in the middle, or would you rather have one person who's bad, but three people who are like really, really good, but not super? Mm-hmm. It's kind of an interesting, you know, idea. Uh, you know, where did you net out? I, it depends on which group I'm in. Oh, <laughs> right. Well, isn't that exactly. really the philosophical? Like, I feel like the good place would have this, like, as a as a discussion. Do is it fine when you're not the loser to right. you know prefer that version? I think it's better probably for the group to have the always winner because then mm-hmm. everybody got a little bit of nobody go, walks away. Everyone got a taste. I agree. We need a little bit more of that thinking in America right, right now. <laughs> I mean, what's funny is that I I just would always want to be the always winner, and that's like what a lot of my friends <laughs> would. would how, that's how we would prefer it is like one person win. Well, that's but, because you're also a card shark. You're yeah, you're very much shark. a card shark. <laughs> wow. No tell, question. Tell us what you've been playing this week and every week. I'm going to guess it. Has something to do with cards. It, it may or may not be both Magic: The Gathering and Terraforming Mars. Oh, both, you both mix ca- them together in a yeah. new game because that would be exciting. Terraforming yeah. Magic. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, science is basically magic. So we'll go with it. I'll take it actually. <laughs> but uh, I've been playing a bunch of Terraforming Mars. I play a lot of Terraforming Mars. I also play a bunch of Magic. Uh, those no, are no, my no, really quick. We're going copies. back to that for a second. You play a lot of Terraforming Mars and Appro- a lot of Magic. But... <laughs> approximately, though, how many games do you think you've gotten through Terraforming Mars? So, like, I, I've never like charted it all out, or I've never kept specific track, but like estimated, I think like 120 games. And how many have you played this year? In 2018, or in the last six months? In 2018. Um, <laughs> wait, wait, probably. I'm sorry. Can we go back <laughs> in the last year? And it was in 2018, or in the last six months? Well, I've only played the game since okay. <laughs> I played at your place, like in September. Oh, really? Maybe, yeah. Like that was the first game I played when you taught me, Larry. Oh, so I basically got you hooked. Yes, and then and then I bought the game that week and got it four days later or whatever. Taught my roommate to play. Taught my like good magic player friends to play, and we have just not stopped playing since. One hundred twenty times worth. In yeah, six we months. Played probably about seventy on the main board, and then Nick was like twenty five in... on the other ones. So a few episodes ago, I talked about the marathon three games of Terraforming Mars all in one day, and Nick uh, was, yes. of course, the instigator of that. Uh, um, so you got one <laughs> of your ten for ten this year, Terraforming Mars, and and that one's probably counts for probably all ten. Do you have nine other games I've, that you? you I, I don't all? think I could play nine other games that many times. Have we talked about what the ten for ten is on on this? I, don't I forget. Actually, I don't think we've actually touched we've on not, ten for ten. No, sure? we right, put well, it on the social media. We put where you how you well you're doing, Larry. On well, yours. I am. I'm doing a ten for ten, and so I have a lot of games. I kickstart a lot of games, um, and and. On Board Game Geek, they they have this program or this this competition yearly competition. Yeah, right? it's for fun, and there's no prize with it. Uh, which is, you pick ten games and you try and play them each of them at least ten times during the year. So it's a mm-hmm. ten for ten. And the idea behind it is to get you away from just playing the hotness and playing a game one or two times right. and then moving on. And so I've played, I want to say, maybe two games four times so far. And I have maybe two or three other games that I played about two times. I think 
we've recently posted a relatively recent update of February the 1st we yeah. did a we did a how's Larry doing yeah. and so I have some some new plays of some additional games there but people uh, were getting worried Larry they're not sure you I, can do it I was it. worried yeah <laughs> play so many different games you I have do. a closet full I, I have more than just a closet let me tell you he hides them around the house it, it every is. crevice any, anywhere you could open the, in, in his house is there, there's board games so it, listeners the we, game we is, cannot mm-hmm. show you his actual full collection because it's all scattered throughout the house there are a few <laughs> shelving like units that you can see a bunch of games but it, it it ain't all of them yeah no part of the fun of of playing a game at my house is finding the game it's it's That's a game the of first itself game. you know it's <laughs> it's how i figure out your uh, your skill level in order to figure out what what <laughs> games to play so all right well i think that kind of wraps up uh what we've been playing let's get on to the main agenda shall we yeah yeah all right, so uh, this week we wanted to talk about the, the, the hotness, absolute hotness, that is Rising Sun. Um, and for folks who don't know, this is a game, I don't know how you would not know, maybe you're brand new to gaming or something, so let's just kind of go through a very basic background. It's a, a, a game by Cool Mini or Not that um, has a ton of miniatures because... Really? A Cool Mini or Not game has it, a ton of miniatures? It's almost as though miniatures was in their title. <laughs> well, it's kind of like a you know Cool Mini. Also or com- not. Also comes with a game. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it's, it's an interesting cross between um, negotiation and war games. Everybody is playing a clan in kind of a fantasy version of Feudal Japan. Um, and it's, phase, it's played over three seasons... And everybody kind of takes a turn going around and selects an action that does something that the whole table does. And you and potentially your allies get an enhanced version of it. Mm -hmm. The various things you can do are build troops on the board, move troops around. You can um, uh, upgrade your troops or, or bring in kind of mythical monsters to join your team. You can kind of worship the gods, which later on give you benefits. And um, at the end of every season, every kind of territory has a war. You work out the war. And then, of course, like most games and, you know, that you play, at the end of the, the seasons, you look and see whoever has the most victory points, and they are the winner of the game. That's, that's basically it in a nutshell. But um, this, this game, for me, what is, as the collector, I backed it on Kickstarter. It was like a huge thing on Kickstarter. Giant. It was Huge. Well, like, like I remember, like the first like twenty four hour kind of thing where people were freaking out. It got mm-hmm. tons of people backing it immediately. I think it hit its goal in like minutes or something crazy. Yeah. So, so cool many or not, for they they tend to have big kickstarters with a lot of minis, a lot of stretch goals, a lot of add ons that. If you don't get it in connection with the Kickstarter, there's a chance you may not get it later, or you have to buy it on the secondary market, and that really, mm-hmm. and that really happened. Um, with with Blood Rage, I think was really kind of yeah. the big one that I saw it kind of take off with. I mean, and then with this one, and this one too. Right? Which version did you get? Well, so so <laughs> there there was really only one base version, mm-hmm. and then there were all the expansions that you right. can kind of add on. So of course, being the completionist that I am, mm-hmm. I got all the expansions. So that includes the kind of the monster pack, which adds in a lot more really cool uh, monster sculpts. The um, Dynasty Invasion, which adds in some extra clans. The Kami Unbound, which adds in, you know, extra god figures. And then there was the, the Daimyo pack, um, which you get <laughs> if you were kind of part of the Kickstarter. And that's really where the nice stuff for me was, is in the Daimyo pack. Wait, what is in the Daimyo pack? So that's the one that has... So there's um, a lot of stuff. Let me put this way. There's a lot of stuff in this game. So the... And when we say miniatures also, by the way, like... 
They're not the, so the main. The main character pieces, they're like, they look like normal miniatures. The monsters are like four times the size, maybe even bigger, of like what the main characters are like. They're huge. So they, they, they really um, spent a lot on kind of these extra kind of quality of life pieces. The, the mandates, which are the action selection mechanism in the game, typically is cardboard. In this, they're these nice kind of plastic mahjong-like tiles. They, they really do. They look and feel like mahjong tiles. They have this, this nice mahjong artwork. They, they sound. They wonderful clicking. Sound. It's great. There's these markers that you use to indicate whether you're in alliance with anybody, and it's half of a yin and half of a yang, and they kind of click together into a nice symbol. And they have these as nice big um, plastic pieces. They don't make they the don't same click kind of so noise, well, no. but, but they look really cool when they when they go together. I'm sure we'll be posting pictures so you guys can see. Um, every every clan has four fortresses that they can put out on the board. And rather than having little cardboard pieces, they actually have sculpted fortresses. Oh, that's it. You have fortresses. To, yeah, that's only in the expand in the yeah. Oh man! And, and the neat thing is, is the the um, turtle clan. Their fortresses are actually turtles with fortresses on their back, and they have actual sculpts of these turtles with They're the fortresses. They're so cool. They're really, really nice. They're yes. the coolest. Can we talk about how many unique sculpts are in this game? Every monster How is many? different. Do you, is, do you even know the number? I, I've not counted. So every, every monster is different. Every god is different. Every clan has different. Well, while some of their army builders are the same in that clan, they're different each clan. Yeah, well, even I've, if they're the same piece, like each bushi has two for different each different types. army has two different types for no reason at all, right? Like <laughs> because it's awesome. It's yeah, it's crazy. But but it can also be confusing. It can be a, a little, little confusing. That's my only complaint about that. I appreciate the effort, but I couldn't tell the difference between some of my pieces because they all look different. But that's why they gave these rings to put on the bottom. So. You're the leader of, of your, your clan has a black ring on the bottom. And then the Shinto, which are the ones that have the option of going to worship with the gods, mm. they have a white bottom. And then all the other ones that are, um, are just blank, those are your regular bushi. Right, but what's not helpful is then when you put the wrong base onto right. the wrong character, and now suddenly your bushi are Theoretically, you shouldn't have to move them. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though, to it, which gets me to the, one of the other subjects I wanted to chat about, which is the artwork. There are little screens that come with each, um, mm-hmm. you know, clan, and they're you know unique. Where they tell you about the clan and a little bit of information on it. They also have this gorgeous artwork. This style is so edgy and fun and cool. And in it, like they do, it's small, but they do say which is which type of of your mm-hmm. character. And so if you look at that, it kind of describes who they are. So if you want to match up your mini to it, because the artwork is, again, all unique, mm-hmm. all representative of the minis. And it's just, like, the thought that went into, like, the, the money that went into all of this development, mm-hmm. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Now, this game has been kind of talked about as being the spiritual successor to Blood Rage. Mm-hmm. And Blood Rage is a cross between kind of card drafting and area control. Folks, Car- talk cards. Yeah. Cards, <laughs> Nick. Cards. You've, not played, you've not played Blood Rage? No, I haven't played Blood Rage. Well, you do have to play it. Okay, well... It's, I'll branch out for one game. It's it's, a, it's card drafting with monsters like this as well. Um, but this was kind of touted as having more diplomacy uh, mm-hmm. than Blood Rage. What did you guys think of that? What was your experience in that regard? Uh, I, I feel like this game is head and shoulders above Blood Rage. It, like, it delivers everywhere that Blood Rage didn't. Why? Um, I think the biggest thing is you look at you look at the games at both of them. You look at Blood Rage and you look at this game and you see like, oh, this is like an area control war game, you know? Which, uh, which Blood Rage is? Uh, it's area control. I don't think so. 
very loosely area control. To me, Blood Rage is a drafting game where you draft cards to get points. The area control is very... Like, it's very easy to control an area in Blood Rage, and you can lock an area down where then basically nobody else can get in there. Uh, Rising Sun, though, that's not the case at all. Exactly. And that's what I really like about Rising Sun is it actually feels like... I I feel very much in Rising Sun like I am my clan, you know? Like I am... I've got my people who I'm sending out, and we're trying to, you know, the way of the samurai, and there's all sorts of different things... Um, there's the diplomacy with making alliances, which is really interesting and adds a lot to the game. Not to mention also the combat, which is really interesting too. Let's talk about the alliances first. What is what is your what was your experience with that, Kevin? Did you enjoy that aspect? Did you feel like it was just kind of tacked on? I have to agree with Matt that I like this so much more than Blood Rage, and I I didn't get into the the Blood Rage you know rage when it first came out <laughs> and all, and I only played it much later, once maybe twice. And I was kind of fine with it, but I, you know, it was almost forgettable. This from the the first play, and then you know we played um, since then too. I just found so many more layers to it, and a lot of it feels like the diplomacy or whatever you want to call it phase. You know, mm-hmm. the tea, you know, the tea. the tea phase. Have some tea. Where spill the tea? <laughs> yes, yeah, spill the tea. Uh, I find that potential. So interesting. I don't know that we really totally did it. Meaning, like, mm-hmm. I think it was quickly like, oh, let's, lo-. you know, we both times I played four players. Mm-hmm. I would really love to have an odd number so that you know somebody isn't going to be allied or doesn't have to be allied, just to see what happens. Is there more discussion? Is there more planning and strategy? And I think it's all potentially there, and that's what makes it so interesting. Well, it's also interesting. Even though you're in an alliance for a season, you can betray your alliance. And that's you one get of a, the actions, <laughs> and you get a benefit for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I feel like. This game can be very cutthroat and and almost uh, I don't know can kind of break friendships. I mean, not that harsh. It almost broke friendship. This game. Well, I'm, I made Matt so mad, didn't I? Uh-huh. That was the maddest I've ever seen Matt, which is saying something because he wasn't that mad. I raised my voice, which is very rarely happens, except for when I'm talking. <laughs> His voice is already raised, is and already it went slightly loud, up from but there. But it can actually get louder from there. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, I can see um, based on the the, the the turn order, the way things go, how, you know how people put their moves out. You may be stuck in alliance with somebody, but then still end up kind of getting screwed over by them, mm-hmm. which is really you know uh, a fun mechanic for me yeah. in this game. But yeah, well, the interesting thing with the alliances is when you're in an alliance with someone. Every time you or that player picks one of the actions to take, uh, you both get an extra benefit. So it's to your, it's good for you to be in an alliance because then on the one or two actions during the season that the that the other player takes, you're getting something extra. Uh, but then they're also benefiting from you, and then they could betray you. And when you betray someone, you just get something, and they don't get anything. So, so it felt like when I first heard about that mechanic, you know, that kind of part to it of the alliances, I got a little scared because I just pictured. Um, what is it, Fief or whatever, mm-hmm. where you have the marriages? Is that where the marriages are? Yes. yes. And I just remember that for that game, it felt more punishing somehow that if you didn't, you were stuck in it because it was a marriage until somebody died. Here they are, like, of this season, you know, and there are, what, three seasons you yeah. go through? And they always and, break at the end of the season. They always break, so you have to decide to keep it up anyway. And there's something nicer about that so that it feels less permanent. And a betrayal, while sounding horrible, isn't doesn't need to be punishing to the other person in the alliance. Mm-hmm. The betrayal can affect 
other the people other on on the map, and it's just more that you don't get that benefit anymore of the second ability. I will say just even uh, just to go back quickly to the point about having an odd number of players, the fact that you get kind of this double bonus for being in an alliance seems like if you were the odd the odd person out right in an odd game, that would be very punishing, and that's where it would actually but, it could become very problematic but in my mind. You can take betray every time because when you're by yourself, you get no penalty for betraying, and betraying lets you kill two enemy figures and replace them with your own. Uh, so being solo and betraying is really useful. Um, and that kind of talks or goes to, I think, a a nice thing about this game is that I don't think there's any one way to win. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the first game we played, Kevin, you were not focused on area control at all. You, I think, had a totally different... Uh, you were alliance-based. Well, and that's because I, you, you'll know more about this, Larry, than I do. There's a setup that happens at the very beginning where there's different choices and we had the t one for that versus the archer versus Mm -hmm. the gates the gates Mm -hmm. and they kind of set a tone for the overall game right correct is that an expansion no so the gate the archer and the t are part of the base set Mm -hmm. the expansions do add other um, options but the base set is those three but but in your point being is is this the game we played focused on t which seemed to be more diplomacy but the game that we played with Nick, we focused on archers, and you were not taking a combat scenario either, and we're, we're clearly winning. Well, I mean, I, I was involved in every single combat, though. I mean, Yeah, so, so, so one of the ways in which you can score points is not actually by fighting the combat, by, but by committing seppuku. You mm-hmm. basically sacrifice your, your, your figures, they commit uh, ritual suicide. Yeah, and which is, it's, seppuku is self-disembowelment, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you score yeah. victory points for that, and, <laughs> and gain honor in the game. And in my case, I was I was a clan who, at the beginning of each combat, I got to essentially deploy one person to wherever I wanted that didn't have zero until I ran out of figures. So every single combat, I would just leave as many um, guys back as I could, drop them into everybody else's battles, and then have my guys disembowel themselves. And between that and some other cards, by the end of uh, of the game, I was far and above in points. And I was never going to get bonuses for ever controlling provinces. But it worked out really well for me. Well, let's uh, go in a little detail about the game, at least the mm-hmm. combat mechanics, since this is where that really starts yeah. to get involved. Because to me, I'm not a fan of those combat games. Like, fighty games are mm-hmm. not really fun for me. But this has a really... I mean, it's not like it's groundbreaking or anything, but I really enjoyed the the ease of this combat system. So, you know, there's different provinces all over the board. And what happens is when you get after you go through all these phases of people playing the different um, uh, tiles, you get to the battle phase. And so wherever anybody is at the end of that first season is where the battles take place. And there's certain provinces that come up and that's where there's going to be a battle. And then you start to, like, do the combat and it starts to get really interesting at that point. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the what's cool with this game, uh, if you've played Cry Havoc, there's a little bit of a similar mechanic. So that this has been seen before in some ways. Um, this game does it a little bit different. You're basically, you're getting money throughout the season, uh, which a little bit odd in this game. Money is basically what you use for combat. Uh, it actually goes away at the end of the season if you have left over. Uh, but you're using your money for combat. Your board has four different things you can basically commit your money or your forces to uh, in combat. There's committing seppuku. There's taking an enemy hostage. Uh, there is hiring ronin, which are sort of like 
mercenaries. Uh, and then there is the immortal war poets um, who basically give you points for everybody who dies because they go and tell stories. Uh, and I think what's great about the combat system is... A, that the mechanics are really cool, and B, the flavor of it really, I think, fits with the game really well. Um, so, seppuku is where you kill yourself, um, which, like, Nick was doing all game, uh, and you get points and honor, which honor affects the turn order track for each person who commits seppuku. Um, and then taking a hostage lets you basically remove another figure from the board. You steal a point from them, and you'll get money as well on the next season. Uh, and then Ronin are interesting because they're like this thing you can accumulate throughout the game you can accumulate these ronin each season uh but they only fight for you if you win the higher the ronin action and then they add to your combat strength so they can change the tide of battle the depth for me in this this game in this this combat system was it's a blind bid and you allocate Mm -hmm. your money to each of the um, uh, items in a fight reveal it and even if you're the loser you still lose your coins so it's not Mm -hmm. like you get those coins back And because each of the provinces are fought in a random order set out at the beginning of the season, there's a lot of thinking and planning Mm -hmm. that goes involved into, well, do I want that fight to happen first? If I do, will I have enough coins to to win it and a later fight? Do I need to force a loss here so I can then have enough coins for a later fight? Well, that's what's interesting, too, is you said, you know, you don't get those coins back. You don't get the coins that you spent back. But if you lose all the people who lose the fight... The winner takes all the coins that they spent and they divide it amongst the losers. So if you're like, I really want to win this combat and you commit all your coins, A, you're not going to have any coins for the later combats in the round because you've spent them all. But B, then all your opponents now just got stronger. So sometimes it's tough to be like, oh, can I win? It's harder and harder to win multiple combats in a row because the more combats you win, the more money you're throwing at your opponents and the bigger of an upper hand it gives them, which is really cool. Yeah, I really found it interesting that there's that main idea of, you know, very risk-like battle of, like, how many numbers do you have versus my numbers? Mm -hmm. And then layer it in with this other phase that is almost not affected by if you're winning the province or not. Like, Mm -hmm. I can get a bunch of points by, you know, Mm -hmm. killing my people or I'm going to change the numbers drastically by getting somebody's hostage. And, like, all of that other part and the blind bidding of it is just so... um, layered in in a nice way and it doesn't feel quite so aggressive as some of the other ones where people are just rolling 50 dice at somebody you know there's something nice about that what did you think of the clan powers nick did you did you find them interesting did they seem balanced to you um i found them very interesting at least mine was uh, let me play in a completely different game it Mm -hmm. almost felt where my goal was to win no combats i would always get them you know at least a coin or two from whoever i was fighting to kind of keep things going kill off my guys, take hostages, and even though I would win the battle, the goal was to win the war by just accumulating a ton of points. And from what I could see, like nobody else could do that other than my clan from in this game. The other clan powers all provided um, distinct bonuses, though, between like free Ronin or deploying wherever you want on the map or having very powerful guys with a limit on how many you could have in there. And it definitely changed the way that each of them played. I'd be really interested to see all of them and diff- how different combinations act- interact. I, I think the clans all do play very distinctly. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. they derive, um, in a lot of respects, ideal strategies for each clan. That's not to say that any one clan is more powerful than the other. I don't think that's the no. case. Mm-hmm. I think, for example... 
your clan, you won at the seppuku because no one really challenged you at that. Right. If, it, it also had to do with the cards that came up. And yeah, I mean, a lot of your power was from the virtues that you took, uh, mm-hmm. which basically give you more points every time your figures die. Which you took the first you know couple turns mm-hmm. in, the, in the season, uh, in the first season. So you, know, you, you built that engine very quickly and were able mm-hmm. to capitalize on it. it. We could have stopped it if we had chosen to, but instead we focused on other things, thinking that in the long run that was going to get net us more well, points. Well, that's the opportunity cost of it, right? That's what makes it such an interesting game, is I had one very clear thing I was doing, and if you don't stop me, because I only have one guy, you can take that hostage mm-hmm. if you and then after you've stopped me from um, committing seppuku, and then I get no points out of that province. Um, but then what's but cool... what are you doing in you know, instead, you're spending a lot of money to stop me in one spot, and you have to stop me on all spots, also. Well, so. and by doing mm-hmm. that, we're giving you money that exactly. you can then spend mm-hmm. at the next battle. If, yeah, the next battle so you so. have no incentive not to commit money because the only way that you lose the seppuku is if somebody bids more, and then you get all that money. So it's there's like mm-hmm. that back and forth with the money changing hands in the combat is it adds like a lot of depth to choosing how to play combats. So I know we've raved a lot about this game, but but. Were there any issues that that bothered you that you thought could be improved that you 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 know had issue with? I know for for me the one issue that I had is is that oftentimes there were kind of rules questions that weren't oh, clearly set out in the rule book yes. or issues that came up with amb- ambiguous language on the cards or interactions between god power and monster power, monster power and clan power. That I don't think were ever clearly resolved. Many, many, many questions came up about like how does this power work with this power, and what happens in this situation. Yeah, I think that was most of it. Is like when you have so many unique uh, pieces to the way that it works, mm-hmm. you're going to have situations where they bang up against each other, and so having an, an FAQ or some kind of enhanced rule book is really getting necessary for just, this. And just even like basic explanations of like how specifically, what specifically things mean. There's one, one of the God cards where we just picked an interpretation, but it wasn't totally clear what it meant, whether you doubled the bonus that you got at the end of the war or not, or if that was only if you harvested, it just isn't clear from well, there the just card itself isn't a reference right and there's nowhere the rule book's huge too it's like this big rule book tons of art in there like they should have had room to put a reference for what the things are or or you know cool mini or not is a big like they're they're very like forward thinking company put a link to like here's the faq like they gotta have play tested this and known that people were going to ask a lot of these questions i i have confidence that that over time as this game kind of makes its way into the, the general population that that those issues will get resolved and answered on BGG. Mm-hmm. Folks should just be aware that if they pick this up now, there's going to be some ambiguities and they just have to kind of be comfortable with just making a decision and rolling with it mm-hmm. until that all gets sorted out. Yeah. Don't don't get married to how you're playing it now because you might find right. out in a month or two that's not <laughs> I it. I don't think any of the any of the like questions were like dramatically game breaking one no. way or another. No. They were just things like, oh, did you know do that you get this coin before I take a coin from you? Or is this bonus a single or a double? Because it, so it was you know, it wasn't dramatically game breaking, but it, there was a lot of stuff. So that definitely, hopefully, hopefully, either come on, we'll put out a FAQ, which would be great, or just over time, those questions will be answered on BGG. So let's let's um, let's go around the table and and say, Kevin, like it, love it, pass. Oh, I love it, and you know, this is so not my type of game, by the way, but mm-hmm. I love it. I love how it looks. I missed out on a Kickstarter. I thought it was a bit of a 
of the the hot thing for the moment and it felt a little bloated to me there and was, i kind of actively refused to back it there was a lot of backlash against it. I, people people were kind of anti-rising sun yeah. i mean i didn't hate it as much as hate but like clearly there is not, a sense clearly that, not that many people were against it yeah <laughs> but i mean like it was feeding the the kind of clientele that loved the minis i thought at the time mm-hmm. um but it's it's a lot more elegant and pretty and smooth than I had ever yeah. thought it would be. And so I would say I love it. What about you, Matt? I would say I love this game. So I played it twice now. Uh, both times felt like there was really different play styles between the clans. Uh, all of the paths to victory, there seems to be a broad variety of strategies uh, there seems to be a really great amount of depth to the combat choices, uh, also to territory control and things like that. So I felt like there was a ton of depth to it. Uh, my big knocks against it are just that because it is a cool mini or not game, you got to pay a ton of money and back the Kickstarter to get the full game. Uh, you know, I definitely feel like a lot of games, cool mini or not, if you don't get the Kickstarter, if you don't get it all, you're sort of getting half of a game, mm-hmm. you know, and part of it is for it's reasonable because they have such crazy, nice components. Uh, so I'll be very happy to play Larry's copy all the time <laughs> um, because I definitely love this game. What about you, Nick? I would say I like it. Um, there definitely seems to be depth. There seems to be tactics. It feels at times a little cumbersome, a little belabored because there's a lot of different pieces and they're Mm. gorgeous and they're beautiful and clearly a lot of love and care was put into designing these figures and then i look at the board and don't know what anything does and spend five minutes figuring Mm. out what everybody's power is for each monster and how that's going to play out and then suddenly 15 minutes have gone by and we've (laughs) moved maybe half a step forward in combat because everyone's just trying to assess what's going on and i don't like games that um that get so bogged down like that. Mm-hmm. It didn't detract that much from the game, and I don't mind. Um, I don't mind pretty much anything else about it. But that did take it away from it a little bit. That said, I'll still probably end up playing it a few more times if if we take this out of the closet again. So, Larry, you backed it. So, what do you say? Oh, I I love it. I mean, I I enjoy the gameplay. I I'm not a full fan of war games, kind of like you, Kevin. Mm-hmm. But but. I like this game. I like the... It's not heavy wargaming. It is still kind of area control. I like the negotiation. But more than anything, as a collector, this totally scratches my itch for beautiful pieces, beautiful art. This this is a art piece to have in the collection it for is. me. I mean, just everything about it. The sculpts, the minis... I, the boxes. I love the, the look of the, the boxes. boxes. They're gorgeous. Style. It fits so well. All, all, all of it. Um I'm looking forward to having these pieces painted to 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 putting that all in. I'm I'm gonna hire a team of people to do you know, that. <laughs> maybe just maybe just the monsters and the main monsters. But I, you know, why have a miniature game and not get these things yeah. painted, right? Um, so I for sure love it, love it, love it, love it. So can I bring up one weird thing? Only if this is about New Zealand or Australia. I forget where. New Zealand. Yes. So, go. No. Oh, yes. So here was the it's thing, which everybody yeah, might have yeah. heard, uh, that like the uh, people putting the game together, um, maybe not experts on like feudal Japan or so, <laughs> where they decided to go to Wikipedia to find out like spirit, you know, monsters related to the Japanese myths. Totally reliable source. Always. Absolutely. Great source. Wikipedia. 
And so they did, and it turns out that they made a spirit like monkey. I don't know if we've played with him yet, the character. I don't think we've seen him. Co- Kothi. Or he Kothi, was here. He didn't come Kothi into the play. Or something, which is actually the last name of some guy in New Zealand that some friends were playing a joke on. Put him on Wikipedia as a made-up you know, spirit monkey thing that's supposed to be all mean and whatever. And he's actually like... They somehow they made a a little character thing for him, and so their character looks a little bit like a monkey version of this guy. Like I saw, (laughs) he was on this interview show in New Zealand, so I got to see it, and and Mm -hmm. he's like, I don't know, my friends just put me up there as a funny joke, and so I do love that Cool Mini or not like sent him a game copy, like they did Mm -hmm. send him the game copy. But here's the thing, I mean. Are the people working on this stuff doing the work they need I to mean, do for yeah. something Heads like up, this? Game designers, if you're going to make a historical game about a particular time period, it's, it's, it's obviously historical is a little whatever, bit of a, a stretch. cultural game. It's, it's the pseudo, cultural, like, historical, nah, cultural game about a specific culture. Like, do your research or just have somebody hire somebody yeah. to I, hire a consultant. Take a quick, Take a quick look over your game and make sure that you're not like accidentally including things well, that it, it, aren't there. It, it raises a whole lot of questions about cultural appropriation mm-hmm. and handling things, you know, with with you know respect as yeah. opposed to um, you know misrepresenting it and, and almost uh, making it kind of silly or disrespectful in some ways. And that's the only well, reason why I bring it up is because that's like the one little note of, you know. Wow, they use a yin and yang symbol, and look, they have the you know the rising sun, mm-hmm. and it's. But you know how much of that, and you know, admitting the fact that I'm not an expert in this, yeah. I don't want to take anything I get from this and start to associate right. it incorrectly. Mm-hmm. So I would love it if game designers just took that maybe a little bit more seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and I'm surprised now actually because having found that out, um, not you know just very recently, I'm surprised that there wasn't actually more backlash on that. Or, um, just because other games have had similar problems before and they certainly have gotten the hate online for it. Um, Magic is actually a big one that's had it Mm -hmm. come up a few times and they bring people in now to make sure to consult, look at things, do a, you know, do a once over, be part of the design to make sure that they're not doing anything inappropriate. And it's not that big of a step to take. In this Mm -hmm. case, somebody could have looked at the design file, seen a monkey and gone, Hmm, there are, (laughs) there aren't any monkey gods in Japan. I, I think part of the problem was with Cool Mini doing the stretch goals, they're kind of coming up with them, I think, last minute and having to kind of mm-hmm. really reach and stretch and kind of, well, let's figure out something else. Let's figure out something else. Well, but I, even I then, mean, like, and I know how work goes, right. believe me. There are many days where it's like, the internet will just tell me what I need. Well, but at the like, same time, if you had somebody who was involved and you say, like, quick, we need a stretch goal, pick an obscure right. Intel or something that can be, you know, some, mm-hmm. some, some, something that's hyper-regional but, okay. or whatever. And full disclosure, I am a white male. I will just throw it out there right now, but... There is a large amount of white males involved in the board game industry, Mm -hmm. and it would be diversity helps prevent things like this. Diversity of like background and point of view. It doesn't always necessarily just mean somebody with a different skin color, but it's people who have actually had different experiences and, you know, knowing about different cultures and bringing that into the mix. Mm -hmm. That authenticity does go really far. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. That so that's said, I know I'm, I went off on a tangent. Yeah, I'm glad I we like talked that. Sorry, I'm glad we talked about no, it. It's, I mean, it's an important said. discussion to be said. I mean, it's it, mm-hmm. you know. Well, and I gotta say, I will say this final thing. 
you know, Kulmini are not kind of handled it well. They didn't like throw a fit. Like, no, mm-hmm. we didn't. No, that's that's right. not right. They, try to cover they it kind up. of accepted it. They sent the game to the guy. It became like, and the guy was kind of like, whatever. You know, it was, it wasn't aggressive. I don't know if people because that's a New Zealander, by the way. Mm-hmm. I don't know if people from Japan are like, what the f right. is now, going on? There are some other inaccuracies that like. The layout of Japan is wrong. Not correct. And, and, so there's mm-hmm. there's other stuff that they've done. I think they they've taken a little bit of of license fantasy with this because with it's it fantasy esque. Yeah. yeah, there's fantasy. Uh, it's still this. very clearly based upon a culture. So. Well, yeah, it's definitely yeah. the fantasy world of like I used to as a kid. I used to love reading the fairy tales from other countries because mm-hmm. they always had just a little bit different feel to them. So the Russian ones were very different from like the kind of stories you get from Japan versus what you got from the German kind of, you know, mm-hmm. grim tales. And I think it's nice when that's incorporated in and it doesn't feel like the watered down version of it. Right. But with that being said, I still love the game. I don't know what that makes me, but there you go. Well, I think that about wraps us up and kind of brings this uh, <laughs> agenda item to a close. So we will <laughs> shut me up. Cross it off our list. <laughs> And uh, move on to our next topic, which is our out-of-the-closet segment. Do-do-do. I feel like we need a theme song for out-of-the-closet. I don't know. Or maybe just the closet door slamming or cracking open. <laughs> that did not sound yeah, like a door. That's a close. I think it needs to be opening, doesn't it? We need like a big creak. Yeah. Crack okay. it open. All right. All right, Matt. Out of the closet. All right. So our out of the closet for this month is Race for the Galaxy, uh, which is a tableau building, card drafting space game where you are racing to build your empire, empire galactic civilization, what have you, colonizing planets, building developments. Uh, and trying to earn <laughs> mining lovely, those lovely planets. victory points by yeah by mining the planets for their resources or by building lots of valuable colonies. Uh, so it's one of my favorite games. I know a lot of people here really like it. Uh, so what's interesting with race is that there are a lot of different expansions to it. Um, yeah, um, I don't know if that's interesting or can be overwhelming. So mm-hmm. so. I think we recommend the reason why we've selected this as our out of the closet episode is we recommend this game to folks. We think it's a a good game. Mm -hmm. It's a game that um, was released a long time ago initially. 2008, I think it was. I think it's around then. And and something that folks maybe should go back and look at. That said, when you go back and look at it, understand there are a lot of expansions that really affect the game. Mm -hmm. They're done in um, waves. So there's a, a group of three expansions that all fit together. Then there's a standalone expansion that doesn't fit with any of those expansions. Mm -hmm. And now they're working on a second wave of three expansions that all fit together that do not fit with the prior expansions. (laughs) Very confusing, I know. You don't Mm -hmm. have to worry about any of that. Just start with a base game and give it a try. And and, and the reason why I would recommend this game Mm -hmm. is I think it's the action selection mechanism is unique and fun and interesting. Challenging. Challenging. Exactly. It is yeah. difficult. The way that it works is that um, everybody has the same, um, is it five or seven. six? Seven. Okay, I was, I was off. It, the same seven actions that you can pick. And if somebody picks it, one of those actions, then everybody will do kind of the basic version of that. And then whoever picked it gets a little bit of a bonus. It's actually not, not quite unlike Rising Sun. Actually, mm, yeah, it's, yeah, that is true. Simultaneous action selection instead of... The, the trick order. is that you need to hit multiple 
actions in a turn typically, or at mm-hmm. least like kind of over a few turns. And if multiple people pick the same action, they'll both get like that little bit of a bonus on that step. But um, that's just kind of one phase that's not in that one less phase that's in the round. So if you have four people and three of them pick the same thing, well, you only do two things that turn, and that can that can get very challenging um, in terms of actually advancing your game plan. So the game becomes about trying to figure out what right. your opponents are going to pick, mm-hmm. and then picking the one thing they're not going to pick that benefits you. So it really becomes this interesting mind game that you're mm-hmm. playing with people, thinking like, well, I know Matt's going to pick this, so I'm going <laughs> to pick that. But wait a minute. I know Matt well enough to know that he knows that I'm going to pick this, so he's probably going to not pick that. And I've played games before where it's just like, okay, I'm not going to settle. I'll let the other person settle because settling sucks. And then it's like, I kid you not, like five rounds in a row of both players playing Consume Trade, which, by the way, only works if you have a good on a settled planet to <laughs> trade. <laughs> both players play that, expecting the other player to play a settle so that you can settle your planet and then trade away the good to draw cards. And then you're just both sitting there doing nothing. Mm-hmm. While probably like a third player is over there like running their own engine, building developments and things, and you're just like... Shit. <laughs> it, it gets especially interesting the more you play with the same people, too, because uh-huh. you will just, like, next level yourself out of entire rounds by being like, <laughs> okay, so, you know, Aaron's going to do this and Nicola's going to do that, and then suddenly you were completely wrong and just they did totally different things, and you're out of the and round And then the next round, finally you change your mind, and then you all play settle, and you're like, yeah, exactly. ah! <laughs> yeah. Does this game present, though, various paths to victory in the same way that, for example, Rising Sun does? Yes. Yeah. What are those like? What are the options? The big, the big contrast or the big sort of push and pull with this game is expanding your tableau versus building a production engine. So uh, there's a lot of cards, usually like the planets you can conquer, so you can get military power and conquer planets, and those are generally they, they're sort of devoid of resources, but they're worth a lot of points. Um, and the game ends when somebody gets to 12 cards played in front of them. So you can sort of race to building a lot of, conquering a lot of planets and things like that. Racing. Racing for, for the, the galaxy. galaxy. Um, I, don't, I don't get it. Is that important for some uh, reason? <laughs> or you can settle these production planets, which then you sort of build an engine around them where you can produce goods on them and then consume those goods to get points and sort of do that back and forth. So it's and the game also ends when you run out of the ch- the pool of victory mm-hmm. points. I wish everyone could see Matt's hand motions when he was just doing I that. I gesture wildly. There were like flapping hands, little <laughs> we need like a fingers, ten face around. This? It was so. I I wish we had just video recorded that. Now I consider myself kind of an experienced gamer. This game does have an issue with iconography for oh, me. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so it's not approachable. While while we totally recommend folks to pull this game out of their closet and play it and look at it, I, we got to give them a caution about the iconography. There are some cards that will help you explain it. It is not initially intuitive. Mm-hmm. Once you understand it, it's fine. But uh, initially, it is not intuitive, and there's a lot of it. Yeah. Yes. So was so, any of it improved with the expansions? No, because no. they have to keep they the same iconography. Yeah, you're right. Honestly, I guess they wouldn't have to. What's interesting with this game is, yeah, there is a lot of complicated iconography. Um, but on the flip side, the iconography I think is actually pretty good. It's weird. It's this weird contrast. Once you like learn what the icons mean it's stupidly easy to understand the cards. You're just like, okay, I get this. And they do actually divide it out by phase. So each card has sort of listed on the side of the card, there's phases one through five, which is like 
explore, develop. They settle, get a lot of information on yes. the cards. They fit a lot in with with no te- with very little or sometimes no text. You can get a lot onto the card. I think it's language independent for that reason. And yeah, yes. it is. It is, which is really good. But figuring out and learning those initial sets, the game comes with these giant. The largest thing in the game is basically these reference sheets that you get. It's like mm-hmm. a whole giant eight and a half by eleven reference sheet, which just lists like all the different bonuses and icons and how they work. Right. I, I will say though that like you can have a lot of iconography and communicate a lot of information and still spell things out. Like to go back to the only game I play, Terraforming Mars, every single card does say explicitly in tiny text what it does. Mm-hmm. Is it beautiful? No, but neither is that game. Um it yeah. you could do something <laughs> like that in a game like Race for the Galaxy, where you have a lot of iconography, so once you've played it a lot, you will be able to glance at a card and know exactly what it does, but also for newer players, right. read it. I had to play a lot of games, and I play you know, I play a lot of Seven Wonders. I play a lot of games with a lot of iconography, and it took me a while to get it all down. Mm-hmm. I think they were going, though, for language independence yeah, a right. lot with the iconography. That's the big, that's the big choice. It's, it's, it's tough as a game designer to decide you know, what can you make language independent or not. Why does that matter, Matt, as a game designer? Why why would you make that choice versus including, you know, some native language yeah, on the text? It, it's sort of an all or nothing choice, not necessarily, but in a lot like per component, it's like an all or nothing choice because ultimately it comes down to if you're going to make alternate language versions of the game, what do you have to print separately versus what do you print together? Because when you're printing a batch of board games, the more copies you print all at once in one type the better of a volume pricing you're going to get. So if I'm going to make a, you know, if you decide, oh, we need to make a German version because lots of people are going to play this game in in Germany. Uh, If the game is completely language independent, there are some games out there. um, Terra Mystica, I think is an example where other than the rule book, there is no text. Um, And so that game just ships with, four different language rule books. And so one game that they manufacture is playable in all these different languages, which is a huge upside. Um, whereas a game that's going to, if you're going to have like, at all text on the cards, now all the cards have to be reprinted. So now it's, it's, it's a big decision in terms of playing, like being able to play the game in different languages. This game recently had an app come out. Um, I think it's like $7 at the Apple mm-hmm. store or something like that. I think for folks who haven't heard about you know, race are interested in checking it out. That's a really great entry point. Yeah. It will help you kind of work through all of the icons. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll, it'll kind of highlight for you what the icons kind of mean and mm-hmm. kind of show you what you need to select or do for these various icons. I, I haven't played the app yet. Would you say it pretty much translates the game directly? Oh, it translates the game wonderfully. Oh. And the, the AI in the game is really, really good. You know, sometimes they do apps and the AI mm-hmm. is, easy to beat it's it's really not the barely best functional. barely functional barely <laughs> functional it's hard to find a game where the ai can play on an expert level and this you know i play a lot of race for the galaxy i consider myself pretty good at it um it's not it's not easy for me to beat the ai you know uh i, I don't win i probably win maybe like 50 percent of the games against the expert ai so it's like a really good that's hard to do it's a really good ai so granted you can play on easy you know if you're like new to the app you can play on easy and it's a lot easier yeah, so so if folks um, you know are interested in checking this out, I would suggest getting it on an app and then you know maybe branching out. This is still a game that you can get; it's still in print. Yeah. And in fact, well, especially if all of these expansions are coming out, they're going to keep it in print, that, probably, mm-hmm. right? This mm-hmm. I think is an evergreen title for them, and and yeah. and they're actually going to release, I believe, in the fourth quarter of this year, 
the second expansion in that second mm-hmm. wave of expansions. Which actually, I think, worth mentioning the different expansions once you get into the game. You know, which expansions to get? Uh, are they good? Are they bad? What's what's your guys' opinion on that? Well, the, the first uh, three expansions that, that go together, they're the Gathering Storm, Rebel vs. Imperium, and um, Something of War. I forget what it is. Uh, Some, something more. Um, there's the standalone expansion, which is Alien Artifacts, and then <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. So that one, so Alien Artifacts is not compatible. That's mostly why I wanted to bring up the expansion. <laughs> it's not compatible with the other expansions. It's a standalone expansion it adds by this, itself. Like, card-based movement exploration thing to it of exploring the artifact. You don't yeah. need it. If you like Race for the Galaxy, don't get that expansion. Yeah, uh, um, Brink of War. That's what Brink, it is. Brink of, of War. War. That's what it is. Um, the the are, are the expansions related to the app at all? Like, can you play any of them? The, through you that? can buy the expansions on the app. There is also interestingly, there are some. Uh, it might be from the expansions that have now been released. But at one point, there were some new home worlds. You all start with a different world. At, at one point, there were home worlds that were on the app that had yet to be released. Um, in the print version, but I think that might be for the expansions that are out now, or maybe just about to come out. So, yeah, the the first wave expansion I think focused more on kind of the war aspect and increasing mm-hmm. the value of pursuing a combat route, which mm-hmm. wasn't quite I think as valuable in the initial game. Um, I don't have the newest wave of expansions, so I don't really right. know what that focus is. My guess is that based on its name, it's called Xeno Invasions. I think the current one that it's um, based on aliens and alien invasions. Of course. You know. Now, Nick, you, you at least before you took over with Terraforming Mars, you used to play a lot of Race for the Galaxy. I, I lost a lot of did get you, Race for the Galaxy. Did you play too. with the expansions, and did you use the expansion things that came with the expansions? I've never played the base game. I'm pretty sure I've only ever played all the expansions, but it's my mm-hmm. roommate's copy, and I didn't even know that there were expansions until very late until uh-huh. we were playing. So I think I've played with all the expansions. The three from that core. Exactly. I, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure he has all of them just like from the names and just, from what I know. Did you play with the yeah, exactly. goals or objectives? Did you play with those? No, yeah. I don't remember the goals. Are <laughs> Very common. The one of the expansions, I think it's the first one, comes with these different like goal cards that you can sort of pursue. You can play with them. I play with them, and it, it can be fun. But also, a lot of it is just get the expansions to get more cards to add to the deck. Mm-hmm. Well, that, I mean, that's the nice thing too about the expansions is they they are modular in some respects. Mm-hmm. You can choose to add some pieces and not right. others, and they. The first three all go together as kind of one package. Mm-hmm. So, so if this is the out of the closet, why? What makes this game so worthy of, of being so kind of perennial? It is incredibly replayable. No two games are the same. Mm-hmm. It, the, the action selection mechanism and the kind of engine building aspect of it make this a mm-hmm. deep game despite its very basic, um, it's just basic card play, but it still has a lot of deep strategy. The biggest thing, which we didn't even really quite talk about how it works, the biggest thing for me with this game is the way that you play your cards is by discarding other cards. And so in the game, you will only ever play maybe like 25% of the cards that you see. And because of that, it gives you a lot of options every game about which strategy to pursue. And it's very tactical. As the game goes on, you can shift course to what what you need to do based upon the cards that you see and what other actions people are taking. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think, ultimately what makes it so fun. So that's our out-of-the-closet segment. I think we all would recommend that you guys 
brush off the dust of Race for the <laughs> Galaxy, give it another play, give it a whirl, check out the app. Yeah, get all fancy technical and do the app. Do the app. Uh, speaking, though, of technology, Kevin, where can folks access technology to find us? Hopefully on an app somewhere, right? <laughs> That's the cool thing. All the cool kids are doing. The, no, no. The okay. podcast app. <laughs> Well, yes, there is. If you have an app uh, for the podcast for Apple Podcasts, you can find us there. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher. All the places you listen to your podcast, that's where you're going to find us. So please subscribe. You have that little button you want to click so you can make sure that we deliver the next episode right to your phone or mobile device. Uh, and you can check us out on all the social media stuff we're doing. So Twitter and Instagram at The Game Agenda. We're also on Facebook, and that's where you'll get updates about us and, and beautiful pictures. Let us know how you guys are doing on your 10 for 10. Are you doing a 10 for 10? Uh, I'd, I'd be curious to know. I, is, Are you done with your 10 for 10 yeah, already? Uh, making me feel bad. <laughs> Can I count different boards in Terraforming Mars as different games? No. <laughs> no. How about different different formats of Magic the Gathering? Well, I don't know. Uh, so subscribers, <laughs> tell us. Comment on this should podcast. Should be able to cheat? Yeah. Do, do we think he should know. get away with that? I don't know. Should, That's we, what we, should we allow Nick to have a 100 for 1? Does that, does that no, work? That, some so people are doing that. Done. <laughs> Maybe that would make up for the others. All right. Well, that's all we've got now. Uh, uh, tune in next week where we talk about some other random game and uh, provide you with other fun tidbits of information. Until next time, I'm Larry. I'm Nick. I'm Matt. And I'm Kevin. Bye. Thanks Bye. for watching. Bye. Listening. Bye. Watching. Oh, every time. <laughs> <laughs>